0: Welcome to Kids Considered, a podcast from UC Davis Children's Hospital where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist
1: and I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg.
0: So, it has been quite a while since we did a COVID update on the podcast.
1: Mhm. And today we should just mention the date. Today is July 14th, 2021. So, Things change so fast. We want to make sure that we do mention the date. That's Bastille Day.
0: (laughs) Oh, it is. Happy Bastille Day. And I think that we both wanted to hop back on here and do a quick update and answer some questions because we've gotten a lot of emails and social media posts and parents reaching out with specific questions as the pandemic evolves and changes and vaccines become available about new developments. And so I thought that it would be useful to hop back on and have Dr. Dean, our resident COVID expert, um, answer some of these common questions. So the biggest thing starting out here is vaccines, right? So we are now so lucky in that we have an effective vaccine for kids ages 12 and up. And there are studies ongoing for younger children. So fingers crossed for that soon. But, of course, about, you know, a month or a little over a month ago, um, you may have seen in the news some news come out about myocarditis and pericarditis, which is inflammation of the heart and the sac surrounding the heart in some adolescents, specifically more commonly in boys, after the COVID-19 vaccine. And so, Dr. Dean, could you just give us a little bit of an update about what was found, the correlation... And then we'll go in a little bit about, you know, parents' concerns with this and and how we can talk families through this.
1: Yeah, so what they've seen is they saw a small increase in the number of cases of myocarditis or pericarditis. And these generally occur following the second dose of the vaccine. Two to four days later, the kids have chest pain, more common in boys than in girls. Um, and, of course, the only vaccine that's being used in kids is the Pfizer mRNA Vaccine, so that that's what we've been seeing. I've seen several of these kids. They end up in the hospital. They're evaluated for their chest pain. Blood is drawn for cardiac enzymes. The cardiac enzymes are very elevated, in indicating inflammation of the heart. And we treat them generally with um, anti inflammatories like um, Motrin, ibuprofen, or or sometimes intravenous forms of anti inflammatories. Sometimes um, antibody therapy, um, intravenous immune globulin. And these kids rapidly get better, like within hours they get better. Usually they're hospitalized for a day or two, their chest pain goes away and then they go home on aspirin or some other um, anti-inflammatory. Their uh, cardiac enzymes rapidly return to normal.
0: Yeah. Well, that's great news. And, you know, it's great that this has been mild so far, but so many parents come into my office and they're like, hey, I am not an anti-vaxxer. I am totally pro-vaccine. I want this vaccine for my child. But, you know, we know, um, and this is their words, right? Because I know how serious COVID is. But in, in their words, we know that COVID is usually not very serious in kids. And, like, I'm just trying to weigh the risks and the benefits of this for my child. I'm nervous. Like, so can you, Doc, help me walk through, like, what are the risks of not getting the vaccine and my kid potentially getting COVID versus the risks of this myocarditis associated from the vaccine? So what do you say to those parents? And I have adopted your spiel, so I'll let you give it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, so so there's a couple things with this. First of all, myocarditis and pericarditis occur naturally unrelated to vaccination. They may occur secondary to COVID. And I've seen several of those cases too, where kids get acute infection with COVID and get myocarditis. In general, the myocarditis from the vaccine is very mild and short-lived, and the children recover quickly without any effect on heart function, whereas myocarditis from other causes is is more serious. And in terms of weighing the risks and the benefits, you, know, you don't have to do this yourself because the CDC has already done this for you. They looked at the highest risk group, which is males 12 to 17 years of age, and they, they ran the numbers for what would what happen if you did vaccinate with a million doses over a four-month period, what would be the benefits and what would be the risks? So the benefits of vaccination over this period is you would prevent almost 6,000 cases of COVID and two deaths by giving those million doses. And the risks are that you would risk um, uh, about 65 cases of myocarditis. But actually, if you think of myocarditis after COVID, um, you would end up with 130 cases of myocarditis among those 5,700 among those almost 6,000 cases of COVID. So, the bottom line with all those numbers is basically, by being vaccinated, you cut the risk of myocarditis in half. So, if you want to save your child from getting myocarditis, the best thing to do is to vaccinate them. Mm-hmm. It's much safer, and you prevent. And hospitalization and death.
0: Definitely. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's because the older population has done a better job of getting vaccinated. We're now seeing the percentage of COVID cases in young people increasing.
1: Exactly. So the what we've done is, of course, the priority groups when the vaccine was first rolled out was those over 65 years of age And, you know, healthcare workers and first responders and others. And so now the people who are vulnerable to infection are people who are not vaccinated. And that's primarily young adults and including children. So when infection does occur nowadays, it's occurring in the younger population and it's really skewing more younger people.
0: So let's talk for a second about vaccines for under 12 because we get this all the time, you know parents that are a little frustrated or just like, you know, it's great for a lot of people, it's great for me, I can maybe see some friends, We're grandparents can come back over, but we still aren't really changing our behavior because we have a five-year-old at home. And so when can we expect, and I know they're studying the vaccine in kind of differing age tiers, when do you think we can expect to see some data or, or maybe even have a emergency use authorization for younger kids?
1: Well, kids, you know the most obvious difference is that kids are smaller, so by weight, so they may need a different dose of the vaccine. and in fact, most of the studies are using a reduced dose than the adult dose that's used 12 and up. Um, and we need to prove that the vaccine is safe and that it's effective. So those studies are ongoing. The manufacturers have stated that they expect results by September and they hope to submit maybe in September to the FDA for emergency use authorization. The turnaround time from when they submit to when that authorization comes has been generally less than a month. So I would hope that if all the data looks good, that we might have that emergency use authorization for five years of old and up, maybe by October or so.
0: Okay, that would be great. And then, of course, right now, I'm sure you're being inundated with the Delta variant. A lot of people have this on their mind wondering, do we need to like, completely go back to how things were? It seems like this is a lot more infectious. Are my kids at higher risk from getting this? Now that I'm vaccinated, is this still going to provide me protection from the Delta variant? So what about the Delta, Dr. Dean?
1: So the virus is going to evolve over time. And as they multiply, as they're transmitted, they mutate. And some of these mutations result in more favorable transmission for the virus. So you know, the first one that we most people were widely um, aware of was the alpha variant, the one that was first discovered in the UK, and that one is 50% more transmissible than previous strains. The delta variant, the one first described in India, is 40% more transmissible than the alpha variant. So compared to previous strains, it's almost twice as transmissible. And of course, since it's more infectious, then it's going to take over in terms of being a higher proportion of the strains that are circulating. And it's going to be more dangerous to people. We're going to get more breakthrough infections among people who are previously vaccinated or who've had prior COVID also. So it is the predominant strain that's circulating now in the U.S. It accounts for more than half the circulating strains. We are seeing some vaccine breakthroughs, but the really good news about the vaccines is that the cases are mild. So there's partial immunity that the vast majority of cases that occur in people who've had prior COVID or who've been vaccinated result in mild disease. Um, It's like having a cold or flu that we're all familiar with and you're an outpatient, you stay at home and you recover. So what we're seeing now is that more than 99% of all cases that are hospitalized or that are dying, these are occurring in unvaccinated individuals. So that's how well the vaccines are working.
0: That's really amazing to hear. And, you know, we always think about like a comparison is with getting your seasonal flu shot because people are always like, oh, well, it's only like 45 percent effective. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, it's even better at protecting you against severe infection that's going to mm-hmm. lead to hospitalization or death. And so this that's sort of comparable
1: yeah, it is. And if you think about it, you know, COVID is not going to go away. It's not like we're going to eliminate it from the face of the earth. We're going to have to learn to live with it. And that's what we already live with in terms of other respiratory viruses like influenza. You know, every winter we don't like go into lockdown and cancel sporting events or mm-hmm. not get together. We go out to eat. We go to sporting events. We go to churches and other houses of worship. We we interact with people. And we can do the same in the future once COVID becomes like influenza, that it becomes more manageable, that if you get it, that you have a mild disease. We, I think we'll, mm-hmm. we'll all accept that, having a, a fever, a runny nose, and cough for a few days. What we can't yeah. accept is hospitals being overwhelmed by patients, ICUs with no capacity. We can't accept that. So that's, that's what the vaccines are controlling.
0: Great. So let's move on to masking because we know that the CDC updated its guidance um, for masking in public places for fully vaccinated individuals, um, which felt a little liberating um, (laughs) for those of us who do not have children. But for those who do have children under 12 who are not vaccinated, I definitely got a lot of like the eye roll, um, what am I supposed to do? questions. So what are you suggesting for families that have unimmunized children?
1: So anybody who's unimmunized, whether they're an adult or they're a child, and you know, child less than 12 can't get immunized, the vaccines aren't available for them, they should still continue to mask when in public places, when indoors where they can't social distance. They should continue to mask when they're interacting with other unvaccinated individuals. Um, That's the only way to protect them since they can't be vaccinated.
0: Yeah, so really masks are not going anywhere in this group. I get a lot of like specific questions all the time from families like, well, what if we have one other close family unit that we do stuff with indoors and they have kids? And, you know, all of this is really always weighing the risks and benefits for your family. um, And, you know, they're luckily as infection rates go down, although we are seeing them come back up again a little bit right now, um, the risk of transmission is lower. And of course, being around vaccinated individuals is lower. So your pediatrician is always happy to talk through these scenarios with you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So vaccinated people can still get infected. They still can transmit. But since they have partial immunity, even with the breakthrough infections, They're 90% less likely to transmit, and that's why it's safe for your children to be around vaccinated individuals without wearing a mask.
0: And then let's talk a little bit about school reopening this Mm -hmm. fall. Um, It seems like in most places, in-person learning at least is what we're going to be hoping for. Can you talk a little bit about what parents can expect that to look like for their kids and how we're all going to transition to this new normal?
1: Yeah, you know, we're really hoping for all schools to have in-person learning available. We know how important schools are for children, for not only just for learning and socialization, but really it's so important for children and for adults too, for parents too. So we know that schools can safely be open during the pandemic, even without vaccination. Um, and the main things that we need to do to make sure that the school's a safe environment is to have as many people who are eligible for vaccination to be vaccinated, and then for those who aren't vaccinated, it's safest to mask when they're indoors or when they're outdoors and they can't social distance. Those are the two main pillars of making school a safe place. A third thing that's useful to mitigate infections is to make sure that you have adequate testing available in case there is a suspected case, and then you have contact tracing so that you're able to limit any further spread if there is a case. The CDC has a whole bunch of other recommendations that are a little more technical that relate to things like ventilation and other things. Those are all good, too. But I think, you know, those are really the three main things. Vaccination masks and then adequate testing and contact tracing are the main thing. Social distancing is less important while indoors if the children are masked. And, you know, really, most schools don't have the capacity to have social distancing. So it's just not feasible to do. So that's why if children are masked, it makes it a a safe place.
0: I'm going to throw a curveball question at you about masking. Um, Let's say, as a lot of my colleagues and peers are working moms of young children, they go to daycare, right? And they're under two, so they do not mask. Um, And a lot of them are like, I don't know, do I need to hire a nanny and make sure she's vaccinated? Can I put my kid back into a, a regular daycare. What would like your ideal daycare situation look like? Well
1: yeah, you know, ideally that they wouldn't be interacting with other children in daycare, right? That's such <laughs> like not feasible. I mean, if your kid is going to daycare, you're basically you just have to accept the fact that the benefits of the kid going to daycare are are outweighing the risks of the child maybe contracting COVID at daycare and then possibly transmitting to others at home. And so you just have to accept that risk because those kids under two cannot safely be masked. It's too high a risk for them to be masked. They could choke or be you know strangled by the mask. So we're not recommending masking for those children.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I do think it is a reasonable question to ask your child care providers if they are immunized. You know, mm-hmm. that's going to be the person providing the direct care, the diaper changes, the feeding, the being right there up, you know, within that distance with your child throughout the day. And so I think that as we return, it is going to be more normal to, to ask vaccination status and to really try and confirm that with your caregivers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If you want to make sure that your child is in the safest daycare environment for COVID, then ideally all the caretakers, the adults would be vaccinated. If they're not vaccinated, then they would be wearing masks. And then the daycare would have policies in place to exclude any child who is potentially sick, you know, with fever or respiratory symptoms, or if, you know, if family members were potentially infected, that those would be the kind of policies that would be reassuring to have in place.
0: So I think hopefully that addresses some of the questions that we've been getting recently about COVID vaccines in kids, myocarditis, the Delta variant, and masking. Um, Please feel free at any time to continue to send us your questions, um, and we will do our best to answer them in a timely manner, if not with a formal update, but um, we'll just reach out to you personally. You can reach out to us on social media at kidsconsidered Considered on Twitter and Instagram or send us a email at kidsconsidered at gmail.com.